Good evening. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for asking. So what I wanted to do, I understand you read the book, The Language of God um, by Francis Collins. Yep, that's correct. All right. So would you mind sharing with us a little bit of the detail of, of Francis Collins' background and uh, his, his life history? Certainly. So I'll start from, from the end and mention that Collins is a renowned scientist and he led the Human Genome Project, which was an endeavor um, that was a collaboration between both the public sector uh, and research institutions and the private sector with leading companies, um, you know, funded by the government, um, and also, but also funded by commercial interests to create the first draft of the human genome. So to decode the three billion letter long genetic code that defines a human being. Right? And to put that in perspective, it would take 31 years to read the human genome if you're reading one letter per second. So it's this massive, massive tome. And you know, that tome is basically the code in which we're written. Right? And so it was a, an incredible effort and, and Collins was one of the leaders of this effort. So very renowned figure in the scientific community. Okay. What was his purpose in writing this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think his, his purpose in writing this book was primarily to dispel a misconception that the principles of faith and the principles of science are somehow in opposition. And he made a, a strong case throughout the book that the, the principles of faith are complementary with the principles of science. Um, and that a scientist can indeed be a sincere believer in a transcendent God. But those, these things aren't somehow incongruous. And I think he, throughout the book, he, he dispels this notion. Very good. So what can you tell me about his educational journey and background? Yeah, certainly. So um, it's very interesting. So the author was the son of free-thinking students who had met in graduate school at Yale in the 1930s. Um, he, he characterized them as being somewhat ahead of their time, doing the quote-unquote 60s thing in the 1940s. They attempted to live off of nature in Virginia. You know, they taught drama at a local women's college, etc. Um, so he was born into a kind of happy mix of pastoral beauty, hard farm work, um, summer theater and music, very kind of free living Western life. And what we think of as kind of a Western and relatively liberal life. And um, faith was not an important part of his childhood. Although he did take part in an Episcopal boys choir, and his parents made it very clear to him when he joined the choir that the, that the theology part um, of what he would be learning should not be taken too seriously. So... No, no real religion in, in his background. Um, his love for science was stoked when a chemistry teacher of his first started to teach him what he, what he termed as the intense satisfaction of the ordered nature of the universe. Um, the fact that all matter was constructed of atoms and molecules that followed mathematical principles was an unexpected revelation to him. And the ability to use the tools of science to discover new things about nature struck him as something that he wanted to be a part of. Um, I guess during his education, he looked at all the different sciences with intrigue, but physics in particular stood out to him because it emphasized more the elucidation of principles as opposed to rote learning of mindless facts, um, which is something biology educations often criticize for. Um, religion was a mild curiosity, but he saw it as something that had interesting traditions of art and culture, but held no foundational truth. If you wanted to find truth, you went to science. Um, so, so at this point in his life, he was an agnostic, not the type who arrives there after intense analysis of all the evidence, but rather the type who find it to be a comfortable position 
that allows them to avoid considering arguments they find discomforting on either side. Um, he, I think that's what C.S. Lewis termed, quote unquote, willful blindness. Um, C.S. Lewis described how as a young man growing up in a world full of temptations, many choose agnosticism or choose simply not to investigate the issue, um, partly because it's the more comfortable position. Okay. Now, did he do anything? What did he do from a graduate educational standpoint? Yeah, great question. So he went on to pursue a PhD in physical chemistry. And it was during this time, actually, it's interesting. It was during this time that he became increasingly convinced that everything in the universe could be explained purely on the basis of equations and physical principles. He learned about Einstein, Niels Bohr, and many other leading scientists. Um, he led the, the quantum mechanics revolution that had uh, unfolded shortly before his, his birth. Um, and upon learning that Einstein was a-religious, um, despite being Jewish ethnically, uh, he, he found that the conclusion that no thinking scientist could seriously entertain the possibility of God to be reinforced. And so he thought that admitting or entertaining the possibility of God, even entertaining, even investigating it, would be some sort, sort of intellectual suicide. Um, however, during his PhD, he, he increasingly became, became disillusioned with academia. Um, and as he was becoming disillusioned with academia, he stumbled upon a class in biochemistry. And this really captivated him. He, learning about DNA and RNA and protein, um, what, he, what he described as all of their satisfying digital glory, he found himself drawn to them to the logic and to the, the kind of the satisfying, I guess, compositionality of, of these concepts. And also, I guess, the fact that DNA, RNA, and protein are very, they're clearly very important to our, to our health. They're clearly a core part of us. They're not abstract, like questions of the origin of the universe. Um, you know, they're a lot more tangible and applicable. And so his yearning to contribute something to humanity also brought it kind of attracted him to these areas of inquiry. And ultimately, his increasing fascination with biochemistry compelled him to apply to medical school. And it was during medical school where he went on to earn his MD. And it was during medical school that he was increasingly astounded by the elegance of the human DNA code um, and, and kind of learned more about the science. But also, um, in, in most medical programs, you're required to go through a clinical phase. So typically in the first two years of medical school, you're learning from textbooks and it's very academic. And in the latter two years, you're shadowing doctors and working directly with patients in a clinical setting. And it was during this phase of med school that he began to look at religion in greater depth. He had many bedside conversations with patients that struck him in terms of the spiritual aspect of what many of the patients were going through. Most of his patients found great comfort in their religions and were very religious, and this was interesting to him. Um, and and the, this is what really kind of got him to think about the notion of God and the role that God plays in people's lives and led him to start pondering these questions. Okay. So you've already talked some about his intellectual journey. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and his faith journey. Um, but how exactly... What were the questions that he considered and the evidence that he looked at that really brought him uh, to become a Christian? From an yeah. you described him as an agnostic earlier. Yeah, certainly. So he had a conversation with one of his patients at one point, and this patient asked him very 
openly what, what he believed. And this woman was, was a Christian, and she asked him what he believed, and he was ashamed to tell her he didn't know. And so this launched him into an investigation. Of, you know, clearly, these are important questions. Um, he's dealing with patients who are facing their own imminent death, potentially. And he realized that this is a very popular part of life. And so far in human history, we all met death in the end. And we need to think about questions of destiny. And so he decided he would look into this, this question and investigate um, what's been said about the about religious truth. And so he his initial thought going into this was that he would end up confirming the correctness of his agnostic or atheistic position. Um, but as he went, as he investigated, he came across several arguments that really opened up his mind to the Christian perspectives. The one that really caught his attention the most and was most compelling to him was the what C.S. Lewis termed, quote, the question of right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe and the quote unquote moral law. Um, and so this is what you know some people, some great renowned scholars like William Lane Craig and others have have discussed as well, this notion of how can there be objective morality without God? Um, you know, every human across across cultures believes in the concept of objective morality. Uh, it's something very deep to us. Even a moral moral relativist you know, believes that it's their right or that it's fair and just in some fundamental way to be a moral relativist and that not being a moral relativist is fundamentally wrong in some way to, to tell other people what they need to believe or to say that if you don't believe this, you'll go to hell. Even people who believe that, you know, they're invoking some type of fundamental morality. It's not. So this notion that we all have within us some type of compass towards fairness, justice, truth, beauty, and, and some type of moral compass within us struck him as very strong evidence for, or a very strong argument rather, um, that there might be some basis upon which this fundamental reality, morality is constructed and that that would have to come from God. Okay. And I believe he also, uh, you know, had encountered a lot of atheistic arguments and such. Exactly. Um, and so from his standpoint, what did he see in creation and science and life? You know, as he was sort of examining these various sciences, what did he see that strengthened his faith? Certainly. So I think one, one thing that I think he, he notes, which is very interesting, is that he's a very strong believer in science. And, um, and he believes that science is, in fact, the only reliable way to understand the natural world. Um, you know, science clearly works in some sense. It, it lends itself to profound insights into material existence. You know, we use science to power cars, digital devices, rockets. And clearly it works. However, he noted that science is completely powerless to answer questions such as, why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? And what happens after we die? Right? And these are types of questions that actually, I must, I must mention Ravi Zacharias, another renowned scholar, has, has discussed. He discusses that a coherent worldview has to address, has to meaningfully address questions of origin, meaning, destiny, and morality. Where origin maps to Collins's invocation of why did the universe come into being, meaning, what is the meaning of human existence, destiny, what happens after we die, and then morality, obviously, the moral law. And so these are key components of a coherent and, and kind of grounding worldview. And um, these are things that science can't can't fully answer. Um, the, the, there's in science, there's this often 
fully fundamentally accepted theorem called Godel's incompleteness theorem, um, and some other similar results related to, for example, um, Alan Turing has a halting theorem. And these theorems basically discuss the limits of what science can prove. Like no scientific system can prove certain fundamental facts about itself um, or make claims that are kind of beyond it in some sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat hand wavily invoking this, but um, it's a very key part of mathematics and key part of computer science to recognize this. And um, so the questions of the very origin of the universe, you know, we know the universe, we can observe that the universe had a beginning, uh, had a, a point beginning at the Big Bang. And this is something that there's a tremendous amount of evidence for that the author discusses in the book. Um, however, the fact that matter itself and time itself came to existence at that point, matter and time, these are the, the bounds within which we make scientific hypotheses. And we can't really reason about what happened before that. And so science is completely powerless to answer questions about what happened, what was going on, what was, what was in existence um, before the Big Bang. That's the realm of, of religion and philosophy. Um, and so I think it was those types of questions that really drew him in. Okay. And at the same time, he also, he'd read books, so for example, one of the famous books by Richard Dawkins called The God Delusion. And he read books that kind of criticized religion, and he found the criticisms to be wanting. He, he thought that the criticisms were a perfect example of strawmanning an argument, and then essentially um, dismantling that strawman, as opposed to truly looking at the argument at face value. And you know, one of the arguments that he really touched on in particular was you know, Dawkins talks a lot in his book, The God Delusion, about the reason, one of the reasons why religion is untrue in Dawkins' view is that so much harm has been done in the name of religion. And the author makes a point that we shouldn't confuse the pure water for the dirty container. The, you can have a truth, which is the pure water, but then if you have flawed humans who imbibe this truth, the truth can be painted, or what comes out of this combination between the truth and the dirty container, what comes out of it might not be pure anymore. And so humans, even if they've learned some things about the truth of these questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, the, but what we decide to do with that knowledge might not be as pure as that truth. And so that was something that really struck out to him. That was one of the main things. You know, another thing is the, another atheist argument is invoking the fact that there is a lot of pain and suffering in the world. And it's, it's many, many atheists have asked the question, and, and also many theologians have asked the question over time, of how can a loving, an all-powerful God allow suffering in the world. And I think Collins, I don't think, does as good of a job as addressing this point, but I've read other books that address this. And um, one of the things that's often said there is that um, one of the things that's often missing when people propose this seeming paradox that either God is not all-powerful or he's not all-good, otherwise there'd be no suffering. One of the things that they're not recognizing and that they're leaving out is that God is not only all-powerful all and all-good, but he is also all wise, right? his wisdom, the fact that he has an understanding that we don't, that we don't. Um, I think that's a really important thing to recognize. And he invokes this and talks about how you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of people appreciate that, a lot of Christians, for example, appreciate that God can work through adversity. It's not an easy concept, it's one that many appreciate. And um, in fact, it's a common precept of many religions. So for example, in Buddhism, the first 
the principle of growth through suffering is in fact uh, kind of the fundamental tenet of the, of the Buddha. The, the four noble truths of the Buddha and the Deer Park Sermon, for example, begin with, quote unquote, life is suffering. And so something that is appreciated in Christianity and obviously in Islam, Judaism, but also in Buddhism. And if a believer, it's also obviously a very comfortable thought because the Bible speaks to this. The Bible mentions that paradoxically, suffering can can be a source of great comfort because we realize that our lives are in God's hand and God is in control and we're not. And the Bible says that for God said and the Bible says, for in your weakness I am strong. And and, and it allows us to find comfort in God as opposed to in other less well-rooted things. And so that was another another thing that, that Collins invoked is this he, he dispelled that other very common atheist argument. And, Okay. Now, do atheists often argue that um, the universe that we have, you know, and I think another thing that he he mentions in the book mm-hmm. is how finely tuned the universe is for us to be where we are, right? For us to exist. Certainly, yeah. How there's a, a number of factors. Would you could you go into that a little bit? And uh, certainly. Also, you know, sure. there's common atheistic uh, arguments against that. Could you just um, uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Certainly, yeah. So, so this is this the notion of the fine-tuning universe is often invoked in something called the teleological argument, um, where you know, the, the fine-tuning argument, I think, is, is a more common term for it. And the idea there is, you know, it's very well known that the the universe, if there are a lot of different quote-unquote physical constants that are key to the the universe behaving in the way that we're used to it behaving. There's many of these. It has to do with the strong nuclear forces that you know, bond atoms together um, and, you know, I guess, regulate the behavior of small molecules and, and therefore the chemicals that these small molecules compose. So, you know, the behavior of water, ice, gases, all these things. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we can stand on concrete without falling through it. All these things are controlled by nuclear forces. There's obviously forces of gravitation. There's constants around the speed of light. You know, the speed of light is a, is a constant as well. There's a number of these constants. Um, and if and it's been observed that if any one of these constants were even minutely different, then life as we know it couldn't exist. And that's for, for a lot of reasons. Like for example, life depends upon certain types of chemical processes, and these processes wouldn't be able to function properly um, if these you know, nuclear forces are um, were, were changed. And so, you know, there's many of these forces um, that all come together, all, many of these factors all come together that, that enable life to exist. And if any of them didn't work, life couldn't exist. And it's been noted that, okay, if you calculate the probability that, any of, that all these forces would be as finely tuned as they are, it's a, it's a very, very vanishingly small probability. In fact, smaller than the number of atoms in the universe, which is 10 to the 80. So it's a vanishingly small number, a number that's very difficult to imagine arose purely, you know, kind of was happened upon by chance. Um, now, atheists often try to, you know, in, in, in the face of this evidence, there's a couple of, of um, I guess, counterpoints that atheists will often, often make. Um, one is there's a, I guess you could call it, it's not even a hypothesis or a theorem, you could call it a, almost, almost just a, a theory, an idea that some atheists have come up with, which is that there are many, many universes, almost an infinite number of universes. There's zero evidence for this, um, except for the f- fine-tuning of our universe. 
But the pure fine tuning of our universe has led many scientists, including Stephen Hawking, to believe that in fact there's many, a million different universes, in fact, an infinite number, and each of which has a different set um, of these constants. And we just happen to be in the one that is perfectly tuned for life. And you know, so that's, that's one argument. Jumping off of that argument or implicitly invoking that argument, there's another thing which is what's called the anthropic principle, which says that, well, the probabilities might be can be as low as they want to be. However, we're an, we are not an objective observer. We're an observer who our ability to observe the universe and to even make this observation that we shouldn't be here is dependent upon the universe allowing us to exist. Right? And so that's basically saying, well, you know, although the probability of the universe being fine-tuned to our existence is very small, no matter what that probability is, if the universe wasn't fine-tuned to our existence, we wouldn't observe it. So conditioned upon us observing it, the, the likelihood that the universe would be what it is, is actually 100%, it's one. And so I find that to be a very uncompelling argument because it's not actually addressing how unlikely it is that the universe is fine-tuned to our existence. It's more kind of making kind of an obvious, it's, al it's almost kind of circumventing the, the key point, um, you know, but that's often invoked as well. Um, and I think I think one of the key the key things to recognize here is that the idea that there's a multiverse it's not at all supported by the science. Um, and in fact, in fact, actually, the multiverse itself opens up a lot of some other interesting arguments. One, one in particular called the ontological argument for the existence of God, but I won't go there at the moment. But I'll say that you know, at the moment there's just no evidence for the multiverse, and um, in fact, it requires a tremendous amount of faith to believe in a multiverse. I think a lot more faith to believe in a multiverse. Than to believe in, in God. All right, very good. Now, he considers himself to be a Christian. Yes. I think it's safe to say that his views differ uh, from a literal view of the Bible and what a lot of conservative Christians would say uh, on some points. Could you tell yeah. us about that and how what he thinks and where he kind of aligns with what more conservative Christians would believe and where he sort of differs from? Yeah, that's a great point. So, I think there's I think a few, a few things I could I could I can mention here. So one is that you know, the author does not believe in what's often termed creationism, which is that the universe is five thousand years old. I mean, he believes in the perspective that's firmly held throughout the scientific community that the universe is in fact over thirteen billion years old, um, and that you know, life on Earth is millions of years old and Humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, or Homo sapiens have been around for 200 to 300,000 years. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence for this. Um, I think he, he dispelled a lot of human in a lot of detail and dispelled some of the often invoked counter arguments to this very clear science. And for example, many Christians say that, well, a lot of our carbon dating methods by which we try to determine the age of the universe or the way that we use the speed of light to determine the distance of other stars and we use this to make you know to make claims about the speed of light and the distance of other stars to to make objections about the age of the universe and we can't do this because in fact um, these constants have been changing over time and the rate at which you know, the rate of decay um, in, in, these, in these elements is, has changed over time and the speed of light has changed and you know there's just no evidence for these things and it's very hard to believe and you know, he makes it very clear that we shouldn't he, he he makes a case to christians that we shouldn't hide from scientific truths and feel that they threaten our beliefs um, he doesn't think that many of the beliefs that most christians think threaten christianity actually do 
Um, and the key thing that he he uses to make this point is he, for example, explains that it's very, very clear that several passages, passages in the Bible weren't meant to be interpreted as a scientific textbook or to be interpreted literally. And he gives the example of the beginning of Genesis you know, and, the, and the oft-quoted claim that God made the universe in, in six days and rested on the seventh. And this is clearly not, not true because you know, the sun wasn't even created until the third day. Right? And so a day from an earthly perspective is, is just defined by a rotation of the earth about its axis. And clearly you know, the idea wasn't to say that you know, God created the universe in, in several days because earth didn't even exist in the beginning. And clearly God wasn't working from earth's perspective. He was working from his own perspective. Um, and that's one scientific argument. There's also a we're from the argument as well, which is the word in Hebrew that was used for day does not that is translated today in English rather does not actually literally mean day. Um, it's the word yom, which is actually a general word, which can mean which more generally means period of time. Um, it can mean day. So, for example, it's used in Hebrew like yom shishi, yom shishi, to say you know Wednesday, Tuesday, etc. Um, but it's also used for holidays. It's also used to say, for example, the day of the Lord. Um, it's also used to say, for example, quote unquote, back in my day. Right? So when someone says back in my day, they're not referring to a literal day. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very clear that this word yom, although used for days, um, it doesn't specifically mean day in Hebrew, and it's clearly not being used that way um, in, in the Bible. And so he, may, he gives that as, a, as an example of the fact that you know, some of these things are clearly you know, literary, and there's moral tales, moral takeaways that were the authors intended to impart, but that this was not meant to be read literally, and very obviously so. And so I think he makes that key point. And I must note, you know, the, the scientific community, so first, I must note, the scientific community is not as monolithic as most people might think. Um, actually, 40% of scientists describe themselves as believing in a God who actively communicates with humankind and to whom one may pray in expectation of receiving an answer. And this 40% of scientists I'm invoking here, this is um, from a survey that's been done several times, both in 1916 and 1987, most recently, of biologists, physicists, and mathematicians, uh, professional biologists, physicists, and mathematicians. And more than 40% um, are, are religious, um, are Christian, or not just, not just religious, but they believe in an, kind of an active personal God. Um, and many of the others are agnostic, and so atheism isn't as widespread in the scientific community as many believe. And most of the scientists, these forty percent, they they believe in a form of of science that the author terms as, I guess, um, theistic evolution, which basically combines what we know about science with you know, what we know what the theistic claims about the very origin of the universe, the very origin of life, etc. And so many, many people have found this harmony in the author is one of them. Okay. Now, what would you say your favorite quote was in the book? Yeah, I, I think my favorite quote in the book was at the end of the book, actually, the author kind of sums up part of his, a lot of his, his claim. And um, he, he says that it's time to call a truce in the escalating war between science and spirit. The war was never really necessary. Like so many earthly wars, this one has been initiated and intensified by extremists on both sides, sounding alarms that predict imminent ruin unless the other side is vanquished. Science is not threatened by God, it is enhanced. God is most, cert is most certainly not threatened by science. He made it all possible. 
So let us together seek to reclaim the solid ground of an intellectually and spiritually satisfying synthesis of all great truths. That ancient motherland of reason and worship was never in danger of crumbling. It never will be. It beckons all sincere seekers of truth to come and take up residence there. Answer that call. Abandon the battlements. Our hopes, joys, and future of our world depend on it. Okay, that's a great quote. What are the top three takeaways from that book that you would try to incorporate into your life? Yeah, I think one is that it's very obvious that some of the passages in the Bible were not meant to be interpreted literally. If you think about it a little bit, for example, the, the example I gave about Yom and day and six days. I think when you think about that a little bit, some of these things, um, I don't think the author ever intended for it to be taken literally. And in the Bible actually mentions you know, that the Holy Spirit will guide us in discerning truth. And so I think Christians, you know, we should use our minds when reading, when, using the, when reading the Bible. We should also pray and ask God and ask the Holy Spirit for clarity. And I think that's, that was one really important takeaway. The second most important takeaway, I think, is a general takeaway to not accept false dichotomies. I think it's very common that we propose two solutions that are put forth, um, and we are we like to believe that we have to choose one of them, um, and that you know, there isn't some position that harmonizes these seemingly conflictory positions, and that I think I think that's often often not not true. I think, you know, Solomon in the Bible is very famous for being the best, quote-unquote, lateral thinker, the best at recognizing false dichotomies and finding solutions that cut between them. We, we often invoke the story of the baby and the two mothers and the two proposed reported mothers and the baby and how Solomon, quote-unquote, got into split the baby in half. And that's a kind of a, a common, common um, actually, I guess, phrase in English, to, to split the baby in half, is a phrase sometimes invoked when talking about finding a really creative solution that um, is the best of both worlds. And so the Bible has many lessons to teach about that. And I think this book reinforced those lessons. Similarly, a third, a third lesson to me was to actively seek out the silent, moderate position in the silent, moderate group, and to recognize that reasonable, pers reasonable perspectives are often overshadowed by extreme pronouncements. The most extremist individuals are often the most boisterous and the loudest. And unfortunately, given the way social media works and the algorithms that power these systems work, sometimes the most extreme statements are the ones that are magnified um, and, and propagated. And so I think you know, we need to actually make an effort to seek out a reasonable perspective, to seek out moderates and to actually perhaps insulate ourselves from moderate perspectives, either in terms of the media that we're consuming um, you know, on social media or through via the news or people that we're talking to. I think we should try to draw out the voices of the, of the reasonable, thoughtful people. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with folks about this book that you think they need to know that we haven't covered here? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'll just emphasize, I think the number one takeaway from this book is that Science is an incredibly powerful tool to discover a lot of truth about God's creation. And as believers, I think we should be open to science and should be the most actually fervent and zealous 
seekers after scientific truth and the most eager to accept new scientific revelations about the elegance of God's creation. And that's that's the first piece. And secondly, I think that atheists or agnostics or people on the edge should recognize that there are a very fundamental set of questions that are highly practical, in fact, impossible to ignore, questions as of origin, meaning, destiny, and morality, that science is, is not fully equipped to answer, and that you know, we have to make somewhat philosophical, um, we have to take philosophical positions on them. I, I mentioned earlier that even moral relativism requires, we're always making some, there's always some philosophical axioms that we're holding dear that, that we're using to make further judgments. So there's the, there are precepts that unfortunately we can't test that we have to build towers of thought on top of. And so I think it's really important to recognize that these questions are important and possible to ignore, yet beyond the realm of science. And so we should seek to learn whatever we can that helps us answer these questions, whatever science can tell us, but then also you know, seek answers to these, to these questions in, in other ways. And so I think um, if, if atheists walk away from this book recognizing that science and religion aren't at war, that there are very reasonable people, you know, renowned scientists who also um, are fervent believers and have a relationship with, with God, um, these things aren't at odds and that also they shouldn't ignore these questions if, if they just feel that impetus to investigate these questions. I think that the author will have succeeded. Okay. What led the author to, to Christianity in particular? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think you know, the author, I think he, he invokes C.S. Lewis quite a bit and he mentions C.S. Lewis's claims about the nature of Jesus Christ, the history the, the historical validity of Jesus's life, you know, it's very well documented. Um, and the fact that Jesus was a real person, you know, his teachings are as they are recorded. Um, it is true that he was crucified and you know, there are plenty of witnesses that he rose again. And you know, the, the very clear claim that C.S. Lewis, I think makes most, most uh, compellingly, when he mentions that no sort of man who made the types of claims that Jesus is documented as making about being the son of God, you know, can just be called a great moral teacher. A man who makes those types of claims is either a lunatic you know, on the level of a, the, the man who believes he's a poached egg, or else he's a devil of hell. And so you know, we can't you know, kind of take the comfortable position that Jesus was you know, clearly had great things to teach us about morality and you know, was a great moral teacher, but was not who he claimed to be. He didn't leave that position open to us. He didn't intend to. But he, so I think that those arguments particularly led him to Christianity. All right. Well, listen, Jared, I appreciate you helping us understand that book. Um, and we'll be talking soon, I'm sure, about the next book that you read. Thank you for your time. Really Thank you. Hi. Thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at christianbrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F dot com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at ChristianBrief.com.